Well, good morning again. We're going to open the scriptures now to Romans chapter 12. We're continuing our series in, uh, in Romans. And um, we've certainly taken our time, and that's purposely on my part, and um, so that we can really drink in this truth, this practical truth that the Apostle Paul brings to us, especially from chapter 12 on. Let us read chapter 12, and we'll pick up at verse 9, and we'll run through to the end of 13, where we're going to end today. Romans chapter 12 and verse, Romans chapter 12 and verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honour. Verse 11. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Trust the Lord will add a blessing uh, to his own word there. As you can see, the title for the message is um, Love for One Another on Display, and it's kind of the second message uh, that we have in um, Romans chapter 12 and verses 9 to 13. And um, as I was thinking about this, I realised, and I've come to understand, and maybe I have understood for a long time, that I'm not a very creative person. And you would say, well, goodness gracious, if you're just finding that out now. Uh, I'm, I'm not very creative or artistic, uh, like Peter or Brenda down here. And, um, and, and how, I, how I get around that is, um, in life in general, though, if I have to build something or make something, I work a whole lot better if I see a model before me, Right? I'm a visual kind of a guy. I have to see something in its completed state in order for me uh, to have a go at doing it myself. Um, for instance, you show me, a, or Alex showed me some time ago, uh, uh, some building plans. And all they were was a whole bunch of lines and measurements and figures and everything like that. It didn't do anything for me at all to see the finished product. But now you show me the finished product and say, okay, that's what it looks like. And instantly, everything, lights go on, right? And um, yeah, again, this has been clearly demonstrated over the years um, with uh, our church logo. You know, we've got a great church logo. And um, our InStep logo is another one. And our soon-to-be-put-up sign out there in the front, um, this is, has the same idea. You know, you can tell me, as Peter and Brenda sort of throw ideas, you can tell me in words and size, and tell me the colours, and etc. like that, but it's still very vague to me. Still very vague. I cannot visualise with that kind of information. But what Peter and Brenda do, uh, and a number of us have experienced this, they um, put everything together, and, and on a computer screen, they present a number of ideas. And so there you have all the colours, there you have all the words, and before it was such and such a font, this size font, that didn't mean anything, but there you are, it's there in black and white and yellow and red and whatever colour it is. And all of a sudden, uh, my vague imagination gives way to uh, visual, tangible reality. Now folks, as we continue in this very practical section of Book of Romans, I think the Apostle Paul had visual learning kind of guys like me in mind. 
You see, we've had 11 chapters of foundational theology about sin and salvation and God's redemption and faith in Jesus Christ. And we've all taken in that awesome truth that's so necessary, so foundational. And as we have looked at that, there's only one logical thing for us to do, for the Christian to do, is to bow in total surrender to Jesus Christ and give him all that we have in our. And we saw that in chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, where we're to be living sacrifices. But Paul doesn't leave us in some spiritual, vague, awestruck state. What he does is he gets up close and practically personal. He now explains the the transformational results of the gospel in the lives of those who trust in Jesus Christ. In other words, you have had all the redemptive truth about God and Christ and the Holy Spirit towards sinners who come to the Lord through faith. But now here in chapter 12, and especially from verse 9 on to the end of the book, this is what faith in Jesus Christ will look like and needs to look like. Here is the visual, tangible reality, the living proof, the practical application of true faith in Jesus Christ. So just in case all that excellent theology, that necessary theology, is suffering from a, uh, a disconnect from our lives, here is the visual. Okay, Here is the visual in these verses. It's a, it's a kind of a, a look and learn picture of the surrendered, transformed sinner displaying what? Displaying, as we have in verse 9, sincere love. It's been said... That the last seven words of a dead church is we never did it that way before. And we say that with a bit of a smile, right? Well, Paul is not addressing a dead church here, folks. He is addressing a church that is alive in Jesus Christ and who, in appreciation of God's abundant grace, surrender and give all that they have and are to his power, to his will, and to his word. That's who he's addressing. He is calling living, Christ-centered, gospel-driven churches like New Community Church to demonstrate what? To demonstrate love sincerely, devotionally, and without hypocrisy. In other words, he says here in these verses, put God's love, which by the way, is shed abroad in your hearts, chapter 5 of Romans, put it out there, put it on display. What an awesome transformation it would be if we all here at New Community Church displayed such a, an increase. And I'm not saying you're not displaying that, but man, I need to grow in this kind of love, right? I need to increase more and more. What an awesome transformation it would be for this church if we all displayed such an increase of Christ-centered love, one for another, where the words would never, ever, ever be, we never did it that way before, but this, we never saw it that way before. Our love for one another, folks, needs constant work. It needs our undivided attention, it needs our selfless motive. Selfless motives. It requires us to be devoted to one another with a family type of love that we have looked at already and also to give honour 
to others above ourselves, as we saw in verse 10. But Paul is not finished painting this picture as he began in verse 9. He's not finished. He continues with eight more visuals, visual expressions of what sincere love looks like and for us to emulate in verses 11 to 13. So I'm going to throw away my homiletic lessons from a three-point sermon. I'm going to do an eight-point sermon this morning. But then to confuse you, I could probably put it all under one heading, and that's the heading here. Okay, so bear with me as we allow the scriptures to provide the outline rather than some clever homiletic or homiletician um, that might want to um, encroach on this. Our first heading is, don't be an inattentive slacker. I'll put a few contemporary words here so that we already get to the grips of it, you know. Don't be an inattentive slacker. And this is what we see in verse 11. You know, the first thing we must remember here, I want to pull you back a bit, is Paul is assuming that his readers are those who in gratitude and in repentance and worship are living surrendered lives to Jesus Christ. In other words, as we have in chapter, uh, verses 1 and 2, they are living sacrifices. And that's what we all should be as believers. So what this means is that those who are surrendered to the Lord are those who will be what? And this is what they'll be doing. They'll be looking out for people to love and serve in any way possible. That's what a surrendered life in Jesus Christ looks like. In other words, there will be a a shift away, a shift away from selflessness to from selfless selfishness to selflessness. You got that? I get a bit tongue tied. There will be a shift away from selfishness to selflessness. You see, folks, surrendered to God, people have their selfish attitudes and their what about me complaints shut down and are given a big nudge. Man, I've been given a big nudge in this last few weeks even thinking about all this. They're given a big nudge to love others as the Lord has loved them. He calls on us now to take the lead in loving others and says, this is how you begin to do that. This is how you begin. You see, this is where the picture gets really vivid and up close and practical. You are not to lag behind in diligence. That's what in ASV translation, you may have something different, but that's what it means. You are not to lag behind in diligence. Or as the one Greek word says for this phrase, don't be lazy. Don't fall behind. That's what it means. I'm reminded of the of the writer of the Proverbs when he says in chapter 6, verse 6, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise. And again, he says in chapter 9, verse 6, How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you rise up from your sleep? Well, what great word pictures for learning how not to be a sluggard, right? We can learn a whole heap from that. About every area of life. But what Paul is simply saying us here is don't be lazy in this area of your surrendered life to Christ. Dear children, dear people, all of the areas of Christian life, of all the areas of our Christian life, this is one that seems to be chucked in the someday but not now or the uh, let someone else do it kind of thing basket. We can easily, every one of us, we can easily allow ourselves to be so inundated with stuff and time-wasting pursuits that our love for others, our expressions of love for others, especially in the household of faith, is relegated to the too-hard basket. In other words, we, and including myself again, can become lazy 
in this vital church family relationship responsibility. Please suffer these words with the same grace they're given. Yes, it's hard work. Yes, it drags us out of our comfort zones. Yes, it makes us more vulnerable to bearing the hurt of others. Yes, it will cost you something. But laziness, being an inattentive slacker in this area, you know what it'll do? It'll smother to death any Christ-like love that you should have one for another. As I said before, I believe we're all guilty to some degree or other in this laziness. You know, we can all be guilty of sitting around and um, comparing what some are doing and um, what some are not doing and, uh, and then weigh it all up and then comfortably put ourselves uh, in no man's land kind of thing, thinking that neutrality and everything is the best and safe zone to be. But that is being lazy. That is being lazy. It's lagging behind in diligence. God has called you, he's called me, to take the lead. To take the lead. To enthusiastically, to show initiative in loving your fellow brethren. Your brothers and sisters. Visit people, help people, pray for people, serve people, whatever it takes. There is no room for slackers or slothfulness in the Lord's business, folks. Even the business, we can take a leaf out of secular business of the world. You get the people who are slackers and slothful. It doesn't take too long for it to show up in the end results of the business, right? And we can learn from that. It's the same thing here. In the church, amongst the Lord's people. Paul warned the Ephesian believers. You know what he said to them? He said this. Look carefully then how you walk, not as the unwise, but as the wise. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Ephesians 5, 15. In other words, don't waste precious time. Don't slack around and waste precious time. Deny yourself and give priority to honouring and preferring others above yourself. The writer of the Proverbs speaks again and he says in Proverbs 18 verse 9, He who is slack in his work is brother to him who destroys It's a bit like these gardens around this church. They look okay now, right? Maybe a little bit of tidying up, but they look okay. For the weeds to prosper and destroy this garden, we only have to do one thing. Leave the garden alone. We have a glorious opportunity at New Community Church to serve one another, folks, through our love. Because if we don't increase in our love, our laziness and our slothfulness will be the demise of any God-glorifying, Christ-centered, gospel-believing church. So we are commanded not to be slothful in our actions of love toward another. Next we see something of our attitude that drives our love. And um, we see this... I've got it tagged here, number two, burn out for God. We see this in the second part of verse 11, where it says, fervent in spirit. See those words? 
You know, we hear so much these days of the danger of burning out a ministry and, and the need to, for time to organise your time and for relaxing and for refreshing, etc. And now all these things do have an element of truth in them. We need rest, right? We can't walk, work 24 hours 7. Our minds need rest and, and so forth. Our bodies need rest. But my take on this, my take on this is we are milking this idea not for its truth, but possibly more to justify our dangerous tendency to be lazy. We cannot rest from this love ministry, folks. Forget about retiring from that kind of ministry. No such thing. You know, there was a purpose in my using Burnout for God as a subtitle because what it does, it houses what this word fervent means. It means simply this. It means to boil. To boil or become hot for a purpose. Not something that's out of control, but like, a bit like a steam engine that, that, that has the fire stoked up in order to drive the steam engine. Something that's in control, but it's to boil for a purpose. To come hot for a purpose. And that's what it means in the Greek. It's a metaphor that describes enthusiasm. It describes passionate, deliberate, on-fire zeal, which is, in this context, is to drive our love one for another. Now, folks, you know me by now, over the years, and I also admit, I can be as dull and as enthusiastic, lacking in fervency, as any other kind of person. I know that I need to work on this, probably more than you do. And you, like me, must also realise something else, that one of the oldest blights on this earth is, you know what? A lack of enthusiasm. After all, every one of us here could make up quite a long list of failures that are simply the result or the casualty of our lack of enthusiasm. And the older you get, the bigger the longer the list gets. This is probably why some people in our world achieve more than others. Look at our sporting people. They can't be dull, unenthusiastic. These guys are pumped. They have to be. That's what drives them. That's what makes them the best. And the best of the best are often those who are the most enthusiastic and passionate and zealous towards where they're going. God created us to be enthusiastic, not people who are off the boil. What do you think when he said, Adam, Adam, here you are. I've done it all here. Now you go and cultivate the earth. Do you think? First of all, you name all the animals. You think, Adam, okay, Lord, well, when I get around to it, um, maybe one day. I'll just put it. No, 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 no. He created us to be enthusiastic, not indifferent, complacent, and apathetic. We must be fervent on fire, folks. Boiling to produce. That's what we must be and need to be. That kind of attitude, you know what it is? I've been with people like this. Contagious. Have you ever been with people like that? It sort of catches on. It's like a, like a spark that gets a fire going. It's like, it's, it's a fervency. It's like fire in your belly. And if there's ever a day that we need Holy Spirit fire in our bellies and in our hearts, it's today. 
We need to stop sitting and soaking and rise up and say, Lord, you have gifted me, as we've learned already in this chapter 12, you have gifted me, so now fill me and Lord, use me. That's what we need, right? That's, what, that's how it should be, right? Then you start looking around. Did you know what you do? Then you start looking around for people to love, for people to nurture, to people to disciple, and to help, and to serve. I tell you folks, this kind of heart change will, will, will change the face and the dynamics of, of this church and of your life like nothing else. After all, that kind of fire... This kind of Holy Spirit heat, can I call it, turned the world upside down once time, remember? If you go back to the book of Acts, that's what it says. When that kind of contagious, contagious fervency, it, when it grips us, take it from me, folks, those old feelings, those old feelings of nobody loves me and woe is me and I don't have any friends in this church, you know what they could do? They're going to disintegrate and end up in the pit where they belong. That's what's going to happen to them. When you truly see what the Lord has done for you and in response surrender yourself to him as a living sacrifice, you will long for him. You will burn inside with a holy heat that will spread and it will become contagious in the body of Christ. Good intentions. We all have them, right? Good intentions by themselves. Do not cut it. And as a matter of fact, good intentions by themselves don't do a thing. Fervency in spirit requires resolve, persistence, and determination. Never only good intentions. Remember what Apostle Paul said to the Galatian believers in chapter 6 verse 9. This is what he said. For in due time we shall reap if what? We do not grow weary. Now in that we do not grow weary has the same idea of this holy heat, this spiritual zealousness. If we do not grow weary. And Paul was an excellent role model in this. He said on one occasion of himself, describing his fervency, describing his Holy Spirit fire that he had in his belly and his heart. He said, I run in such a way as not without aim. In other words, he was going on in the Christian pathway, but he had purpose, he had drive. He said on another occasion, I box in such a way as not beating the air. In other words, he had a purpose. 1 Corinthians 9.26 There was purpose and resolve and enthusiasm that boiled hot for his serving and love for other people. You know, this guy walked his talk. He did. He walked his talk. And people, you know what, were attracted to his enthusiastic, contagious fervency, which was about Christ, and it was all others focused. May we be challenged to move out of our comfort zones and as living sacrifices be those who are prepared to be burned out for God in a service of love one for another. Our third one is see is serving who? Who are we serving? Serving the Lord, right? We see this in the third part of uh, verse 11. You know, as being fervent in spirit, it describes an attitude, right? It says an attitude thing. Serving the Lord also has to do with perspective and priorities. How true it is, we often fall into a rut. And in ministering to others, for ev- we often fall- minister to others for every other reason rather than the true reason. That is the Lord. All that we do should be constantly aligned and consistent with God's word and done purely out of a devotion toward him. 
Yet so much of our serving can be wood, hay and stubble. And you know why that is? Nothing wrong in the things that we do, but it can be wood, hay and stubble because we have lost sight of who we're serving. Even loving others, even loving others, we can do this out of a fleshly desire to serve our own means. To serve our own ego. To satisfy our own self-acclaimed righteousness. And we can even do it out of, okay, I'm serving this great church here. All of these things may look good on the outside, but unless we are truly serving the Lord, we've missed the mark. Paul uses the word serving here, which has a particular reference, by the way, to his position or his status. And his status was, when he uses this word serving, was a bond slave. Not just a slave, a bond slave. In other words, a one who was willing to lay himself at the feet of his master and was willing and felt that a privilege and an honour and a pleasure to serve his master. That's what a bond slave is. And that's what this word has its roots in. A very different word than we would read the word worship in verse 1 of this chapter when it talks about a service of worship. So here we have that it's to do with his position. You know, as I was thinking about this, truly our position, our existence is all about being bond slaves of Jesus Christ, right? And it should be our pleasure and our privilege to serve him in such a way. But as we're thinking of that again, we think, oh, but wow, this is not humanly impossible. I have this, I have that, I have other things to think of, I have a boss to, to, to satisfy, I have a family to feed. How can I serve the Lord as a bond slave in all those areas? Well, to have this bond slave mentality, this submissive drive, is not merely about human potential. It's not just about sucking it in and getting on with it, princess kind of style. It's not about sucking it in and having true grit, so to speak. No, 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 no. You know what this is? To be a bond slave and to every area of our life, having that bond slave mentality, overpower it and undergird it and overshadow it. It's all about God's power working in us and working itself out of us. The Apostle Paul could say, I am striving according to who? To his power which works mightily within me. Colossians 1 verse 29. Maybe we should ask ourselves, and maybe I should ask myself as I have throughout this week, who and how are you serving in this church? Who and how? We constantly need to be devoted to Christ in order to serve him only. Otherwise, our service of love to others will be just a puny human effort. And you know where that's going to end up? It'll end up as material only fit for burning at the judgment seat of Christ. Fit for burning. Come on to uh, number four here. We see that uh, the next visual picture that Paul gives us is rejoicing the hope of God's promises. We see this in the beginning of verses 12. You see, to be sincere in love for one another is hard work. As we have already said, it's hard work. It does demand resolve, determination and perseverance and working with the Spirit of God who works within us, etc. But sometimes even serving the Lord with right attitudes, right motives 
and right things and right actions, sometimes it doesn't guarantee plain sailing and trouble-free success, does it? We often face opposition. We often face resentment. We often face all those kinds of things and in spite of the sincere love that you or myself have actively demonstrated. So from this we see that amidst our labour of love, I believe Paul reminds us here that there will always be trials and testing. There will always be. Matter of fact, it seems to be part and parcel of loving one another sincerely. Parents who minister with sincere love to their children and bring them up in the ways of the Lord do not always guarantee success. Does it? Pastors, missionaries, youth leaders, and even your missionary status in your workplace is not always smooth sailing and as successful as you might like it to be or planned it to be for God, right? Sometimes it can be so discouraging, especially when your hopes and plans for spiritual growth, for repentance and salvation have all been discarded and they've been tramped on. And and it seems that you have wasted all your love effort, so to speak. Well, I believe this is why Paul speaks of rejoicing in hope here. This is why he, 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 he puts this here. Don't forget, don't forget, by the way, that this whole section is not just a bunch of disconnected commands. Keep in mind that Paul is still showing us the picture of what sincere love looks like, as from verse 9. And here he is saying, even those whom you love sincerely for Christ, and maybe they just don't want to be loved back, um, and do not love you in return, don't give up on them. Don't give up on the body, the building which Christ is building. Because as you love that hard to love person, that family, that youth group, you are serving God in doing that. And as you continue in your service of sincere love toward those hard to love people, you know what? In all amongst the difficulties, this is what you can do. You can take joy in hoping in the promises of God. Because that's what the joy speaks about. You can take joy in hoping with a sure hope in the promises of God. And as you serve steadfastly, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, God promises us your toil is not in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. So joy, rejoice. Paul then goes on to tell us that when the going gets tough, bear up. We see this in second part of verse 12. You know, one of the marvelous facets, one of the great facets of being a Christian is that we can rejoice even when everything in life comes crashing down, right? Sometimes we probably don't feel like rejoicing too much, but we've got to surround ourselves and, and, and put the detail in the bigger picture. And when we start doing that theologically from a, from a surrendered life, everything falls into place. And so we can, have, we can rejoice. And the reason is, we have an eternal hope that supersedes any temporary setback that you might think. Because any setback on earth is temporary, right? It's because of our hope in Jesus Christ and all that he has promised us that we can what? We can persevere in tribulation, it says here. 
Now this persevering in tribulation, I believe, is still linked to the showing sincere love to the family of God. The word persevere simply means to bear up. That's the Greek understanding or the Greek uh, meaning of it is. It's to bear up. It's to wait patiently. And here it's associated with tribulation. That is, what is tribulation? It's trouble, it's trial, it's oppression of some description. So in the context of sincere love in the family of God, you have this image of having to deal with people who are a burden to you somehow. Or perhaps those who have rebelled and have cut you to the quick. And they just won't get right with God. You know that kind of burden, right? We all do. We all do. Every single one of us, I'll guarantee, know that burden. So what do you do? What do you do? You keep on loving them. You keep on serving them. You keep on rejoicing in the hope of glory that we just spoke about. You bear up, you wait patiently in this time of oppressive trial. You bear up under whatever hurt and pain they throw back at you. Now that's showing sincere love, folks. That's showing sincere love. That's the answer to wayward families, rebellious believers, and immature Christians. Never, never give up on the family of God. Never collapse under the pressure that they might place upon you. May by God's grace we become those who love sincerely through persevering in these kind of tribulations because I know they're very powerful and can be very hurting. The next one, we are to be devoted to prayer. We see this in the end of verse 12. And so anyone who loves sincerely will be a special kind of person, right? And you're all called to be special kind of people because the Lord has put a difference. After all, you will be, we're called not to be um, inattentive slackers and we'll be prepared to burn out for God and, we'll, and we will be those who will only serve the Lord and uh, we'll be people who rejoice in the hope of God's promises and glory. And, and when the going gets tough, we'll persevere. Now, that is not the characteristic of the ordinary. I would suggest it's a characteristic of the extraordinary. Or the characteristic of supernatural living, to say the least. And the only way you can love like that, folks, the only way you can be an extraordinary person that loves like that, is your utter dependency and devotion to God in prayer. This is the kind of supernatural living, this, this kind of supernatural living. It will not be for the faint-hearted, by the way. It will not be for the faint-hearted who regulate their prayers to a once-a-day prayer time and, and give, maybe give an amen on Sunday mornings. No, no. That's a kind of action. That kind of action is not devotion. It's more like emotion. For believers to love sincerely, they will pray knowing prayer is their lifeline. It's their only avenue and help and for mercy and for divine intervention to find help and grace in times of need. Prayer to the believer, to the surrendered life will be as, as natural as breathing is to our physical lives. 
But we will pray not only now and then, but we will be an attitude of prayer at all times. That's why Paul says the first, and to the Thessalonian believers in chapter 1, verse 17, pray without ceasing. We all know that little verse, right? In other words, to sincerely love one another in this church, there will and needs to be in my heart and your heart a revival of being devoted to prayer. And we need to share with those in need. We see this in verse 13 at the beginning. Share with those in need. You know, the last two points that we have here, um, Paul places in his list, what Paul places in his list may seem um, rather mundane, these last two points. But when you, but when you start to sincerely love, as we've seen described in this detailed word picture, can I call it, um, you will see that something flows out of that. Something flows out of that. Or something will flow out of you when you're that kind of person. And what flows out of that is that you will start noticing needs in the body of Christ like you've never noticed them before. And all of a sudden you want to participate in meeting the needs of the body of Christ. Is this something I can do? What can I do to help? How can I serve? You see folks, there are too many Dead Sea Christians, I call them, around these days. And I use that analogy because the Dead Sea, as you know it in Israel there, is dead. You know why? Because there's only one river flowing into it, the River Jordan, even though it's not much. But it's still able enough to keep it supplied with water. But you know why it's dead? There's no river flowing out of it. And hence it crystallizes and stagnates. There's no marine life, there's no growing plants in it, it's dead. You can't even sink in the stuff. It has all the input it needs to be healthy, but no output. No output. Christians too can have all the input we need. But there is no output. So often there's no output. And because of that, they will crystallize, they will stagnate like the Dead Sea and be good for nothing. Believers who love sincerely will soon overflow. This is what they'll do. They'll soon overflow into the lives of others and there will be output. You see, folks, a surrendered life to Christ will be one who contributes and wants to contribute. The word contributing here, by the way, it means to participate, to share in. And it's often translated fellowship, or koinonia is the Greek word there. It's as in a mutual sharing and a partnership. Now this is not talking about what we have today in the business world, a sleeping partner or a silent partner, etc. Well, all you do is supply the cash and don't do any of the work. No, 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 it hasn't got that idea. It's not that kind of deal. This is total surrender. With whatever God has given or gifted you with, you are to partner or share or contribute that to the needs of the saints in the local church. I'm reminded of Paul's encouragement to the Galatian believers. He said this. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially to those of the household of faith. Galatians 16. Maybe a good question again for us this morning is, for us to ask ourselves before God is, how can I contribute more, or how can I contribute better toward the need of the saints in this church? And then finally, 
We have our last one. We're to pursue loving hospitality. And we see this right at the end of verse 13. Yeah, here's another output for a sincere loving believer. Now get this folks, because this word picture here is very vivid, okay? This practice hospitality phrase that we have in our English translation, in the Greek, it means to pursue the love of strangers. See that? That's what it means. In other words, we're not only to meet the needs of believers or unbelievers or whoever they might be, who providentially or just happen to knock on our door or who may come across our paths somehow and then we show hospitality. No, 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 no. It's not, it's not, it's not only that. And it's not a case of, okay, you asked me over for dinner, so it's my duty to ask you over for dinner. No, 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 it's more than that. What this means here, this pursuing the love of, of, of strangers, we are to go all out, purposely pursuing and seeking believers and non-believers alike with what? With sincere, loving hospitality. This is the work and the call of the church, folks. Now that's what I call theology input, having a Christ-like output, right? Is that how we value our homes, our money, our time, our resource, our giftedness, so that we can be sincerely hospitable? It should be. I'm reminded of the Apostle Peter's words in 1 Peter 4.9. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. That is, we should be looking upon our hospitality as a happy privilege and not a drudging duty. Even coming to the international dinner tonight is being hospitable. I'm going to be here, and by you being here, it's being hospitable to me, and by me being here, it's being hospitable to you. May these word pictures of Paul's May they, they may have sounded a little terse and a little sharp. Forgive me if they've come across like that. Because I love you as, just like Paul loved and expressed those words in the, in the Philippians uh, that we read earlier. May these words of Paul's embed themselves in our hearts. So that as living sacrifices, surrendered to Christ and being transformed by the renewing of our minds, May we learn and increase in sincere love one for another.